0: Betches
1: Media presents Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President You
2: want to hang out with us? and Get your vaccine. Vaccine, vaccine And so I went to Human Resources There's
1: some things I just can't tell you uh, on air The Betches Sub Podcast
2: A woman's problem, if you will
0: Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Sammy Sage. And this is the Buchess of Podcast, where C-SPAN meets the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today, we're joined by the moderator of Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, who is, of course, Margaret Brennan. She's also the network CBS's chief foreign affairs correspondent. She was previously a White House correspondent for CBS and reported on the White House throughout the Obama and Trump administrations. Plus, you and probably your mom and dad and grandparents and neighbors and aunts and uncle have also seen her on CBS this morning. Big introduction big jobs you have thank you so much for making time to join us today thank you so much for for having me
3: it's great to be with you yes we are so excited I'm also loving your face the nation background which is incredibly recognizable (laughs) so I know I feel like I'm about to be asked some hard questions
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly this is um I'm in my house right now but this is our studio downstairs that was you know this is the pandemic reality this is the backup plan if I'm quarantining. Um, But it's also nice to be able to use sometimes.
0: Yes, yes. I was wondering, were you able to make it in with the the big snowstorm this weekend?
1: Yeah, you know, the Mid-Atlantic area, this area wasn't hit that hard. It was like a light dusting. But you know, people down here kind of freak out in in DC when there's (laughs) the first snowflake. And being from New England originally, I I find that laughable. But um, but everyone made it in. Everyone was easy when it came to uh, getting to the office. Have you ever done the sledding on, on the Capitol? I've always wanted to do that. I always see pictures of that. I've never done it. I hope, I hope my kids can. They're still a little too young to do that. But yeah. <laughs> um, a few weeks ago, we had a big snowstorm here. And my husband is a huge snowboarder and is still like dying to go snowboarding and like because of the mm-hmm. pandemic, has not done it in the past few years he actually took his snowboard and went down our street, believe it or not. Oh, gosh, bless his heart. Yeah, he he only (laughs) went once. So (laughs) deprived. Yeah, I was yeah, like he's desperate. <laughs> <laughs> Two times
0: would have been would have been a uh, would have been tough. But we wanted to. So, Face the Nation is the most viewed Sunday show in the country. We watch it all the time. I know Sammy's mom right watches every single Sunday.
3: My whole you life. You started your whole, whole life. That's from, incredible. I mean, that's like what was Sunday morning viewing. Face the Nation, right? Meet the Press. We switch between the channels. Yeah. Was that
0: the case for you? Did you grow up and was was Face the Nation playing in your household? What was sort of like news
1: consumption like when you were growing up? Um, you know, my parents did have the news on quite a lot. Like I remember, and and I say to my mom, when she talks about me being in the news business, I'm like, well, it's kind of your fault in some ways because she was letting me watch the evening news. So all these things through osmosis do affect your children. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, but, um, you know, I did on Sunday mornings, love sitting down in the New York times, the New York times magazine. That was part of my routine growing up. And even in elementary school, you know, my parents would sort of monitor things a little bit as to what I was reading, but I loved being a consumer of news um, and the Sunday morning shows.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you started at Face the Nation in 2018, right? When you would have been just 38. So I think we share our first question with most of our listeners. How did you get here? How did you get to where you are now? Which is just such an incredible aspirational, seems like a career high.
3: We're taking notes for ourselves
4: so. yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: no i love this job um and i it is kind of incredible i ask myself that sometimes certainly i remember when i was um i got the call saying i got the job and i kind of didn't know what to say um because it it didn't even seem real it, I loved when I was a correspondent and coming on as a panelist, I loved coming on face the nation because I felt like, like you had to bring your a game. You had to sit down and know what you were talking about as a correspondent when you were asked by Bob Schieffer or John Dickerson, exactly what the state of play was. And I loved that standard. And so now the idea that I'm the person who gets to do that is, is kind of mind blowing. Um, but, you know, I do believe in the the preparation meets opportunity idea. I have, uh, been working since I was 22 years old uh, and straight out of school in journalism in one form or the other behind the camera as a producer as a researcher and for me it was always about being able to um, have the conversations that that answer the questions I was wondering about and worrying about and I love that I get to do that for an hour every Sunday so it was just kind of constantly being curious is the oversimplified way of getting it but it took a while it took a long time time to get here at least, um, from where I was sitting, and I know people get really impatient these days with moving quickly. It's not like I had a five to ten year plan. In fact, I'd say don't carve out a five to ten year plan necessarily if you want to get to a place that that you can succeed and you love. That's a bit of a hot
3: take advice. You really never hear people saying actually you don't need the plan. You <laughs> you need to just you know take the opportunities as they come. But how do you how did you train yourself to prepare for? some of these really high profile or even just regular stories, like what is your process like for that?
1: Well, I mean, for me, it's not, I always love coming in with a plan and a strategy. (laughs) I don't mean to say don't have any thought into where you're going, what you're doing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't be overly prescriptive because sometimes (laughs) you don't know when the opportunities are real opportunities um, or where they could take you. So, so don't be, um, you know, don't turn down things that may not at first glance um, be a really educational experience for you. For me, for preparation, I, I do what I've always done, which is kind of cram um, on everything I can learn about the topic. It's often the case that um, I'll call an expert in the field if it's in the area that I'm reporting in. Often I know who those people are. Um, and if it's a, a new area completely... Uh, we try to pick up the phone and talk to someone who's been working uh, in a think tank or on Capitol Hill or in the White House on that issue and just try to download everything you can so that you kind of know the framework of where you're going or, or the, the problem mm-hmm. set. And then you pick apart the the, the question and the challenge um, and pick apart your own assumptions about things or the assumptions the guest is making to find where the holes in the argument is. It's kind of basic analytics in that way. And it, in many ways, that's what the job is um, and, and often what journalism is. Yeah. So you're
0: like you've you're known for being extremely prepared. And so I'm, I'm glad we got you after Sunday's show, because on Sunday you had Republican Senator Lindsey Graham on and he voiced support for nominating James L. Childs, who's a black woman to the Supreme Court, amid calls from most of many of his colleagues that Joe Biden is giving black women unfair advantage. So I'm curious if that response surprised you, and what do you do if, if you get surprised? It sounds like you said you download all the information, so you're ready to pivot. But but sort of what goes through your head in that moment when you're like, oh, Lindsey Graham actually just said he will, with open arms, support Joe Biden's nominee. I know I would be like,
1: what? What? <laughs> Well, I had um, I, I didn't I wasn't surprised by Lindsey Graham. I was surprised the week earlier with uh, Benny Thompson, the chair of the January 6th committee. That was one of those few moments. Yeah, for my, take us my, through that as well. That'd be cool. My jaw drop. But with Lindsey Graham, you know, Jim Clyburn, Congressman from South Carolina, a House whip, had done a series of interviews in which he basically was telling everyone that he had all the South Carolina votes on lock for Michelle Child. So he was pretty much telegraphing that he'd already uh, locked in Lindsey Graham and Lindsey Graham um, confirmed that, that he wanted. And to be fair, on his face, if you just look at Lindsey Graham's voting record, he's voted for every single Supreme Court nominee and he's voted for every nominee from the state of South Carolina. So if it ends up being this judge from South Carolina, chances are Um, And he leaned pretty hard into yes when when I asked him about child for Benny Thompson, the chair of the January 6th select committee. um, You know, this is such a hard topic, uh, January 6th and the investigation, because and I spent a lot of time talking to our researchers and our producers about it because there's just so much. The the net they are casting is so wide. And it was a huge week. They'd they'd subpoenaed, you know, two white nationalists. They'd asked Ivanka Trump to come in. They'd gone and subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani, a bunch of other lawyers. And you're kind of like, well, where do I focus? You know, there's so much. And uh, it was actually someone on our team who, when we were looking at the timeline of some of the reporting that had been out there uh, in regard to the fake slate of electors and that was sent from some states and also conversations in the Oval Office at the time about taking voting machines out of battleground states, that that conversation actually happened inside the Oval Office. And when we were talking about it, it was pointed out to me, the timeline on uh, resignations, that Attorney General Bill Barr had resigned shortly around this time of this meeting, roughly, and that just was kind of interesting. And when we were talking through it, none of us knew the answer to the question of, well, has, has the committee talked to Bill Barr? So why don't we ask that? Um, and in the in the course of the conversation, the chairman, who's all, often very careful and they really don't release a lot of information about the probe, he said, oh yeah, we've talked to him. And, and he started sharing information. And I I said, whoa, 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 because he was talking uh, about the investigation and what he said was a deep concern that our military or parts of our military were involved in this. I mean, the, that, wow, Uh, really kind of gobsmacked me for a moment. I think you can kind of tell that in the interview, but it's a huge bombshell. It was a huge moment for him to drop.
2: Hey, American Fever Dream listeners. I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift, because now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone for any occasion. And it's easy. You just tap or click
4: So when you have a moment like
3: that, where you're either completely taken off guard or caught off guard by what the interviewee says, or even kind of the flip side where you really want to get an answer about something and the person is being elusive. Like, how do you decide where to go in those types of moments to either push or, you know, ask a question that's off the cuff that maybe, you know, wasn't fully researched by your team?
1: Right, right. No. I mean, this is one of the things that I think it becomes, there are a few things that are really hard and really important to do in live interviews. And one is to listen and know that you're following up on what was just said, but also going where you need to go um, next in this limited amount of time. So it's really, you're making all the time, these. you're calling audibles all the time. You're kind of moving mm-hmm. through this matrix of if then clauses to, um, and saying, oh gosh, I've only got two minutes. I got to make a choice here. So you you constantly adjust. Um do I walk I often walk off set and go gosh, darn it, if I'd only had two minutes. That women, was my next question. Yeah. I would have gone there with it or I should have said it this way or I um I always do that to myself. So uh, you know, you can always analyze also after the fact like, oh, maybe I should have gone harder this way at this person. Or, you know, I mean, usually my choice is just sort of Generally, I think it is important for people to have context, perspective, and to hear someone out to try to understand where they're coming from, and then respond to it, and then maybe pick that apart a little bit and ask why. And I think mm-hmm. if you show a basic respect for people in that way that they often reciprocate and that can lower the temperature, and sometimes you find out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a little different, but you know, sometimes you walk away and you're like, God, that was a waste of time. All I heard was talking points. I, yes, that happens. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But I'm sure there are some times where it's like from the beginning of the interview, all you were probably going to hear was talking points anyway. Do you ever start an interview and you're like, oh, they're not, they're not going to give me what, what I was hoping for? Do you, I I assume you sort of just stick it with it, with it the whole
1: time and tried for the duration, but, um, no. No, you do. but you know, And sometimes sometimes you understand it, right? Like, if you're talking to a world leader, I was speaking to the Secretary General of NATO, for example, last week, who is, like, talking, knowing that the Kremlin's listening and, you know, the Ukrainian military's listening and everyone right. else. And he's got, saying, if I say this in the wrong way, this could have real-world implications. So I know why he's sticking to the talking points. But okay. sometimes you can kind of get a little bit more or more clarity on what how they're thinking about a strategy if you come at the question a few different ways yeah that's
0: so fascinating because i'm sure because because your your objective is getting the information and it sounds like i'm sure you have those interactions where it's like you know that there are certain calls he's holding so it's almost like you're just doing this dance together to try to find a way to get the most information to the people without putting I mean, it's not your responsibility to put him them in a bad position, but it it does show that it is like the best interviews. Each side is like so fully engaged the whole
3: time. Exactly. What is the most challenging interview you've ever done? Or
1: even if it's not a specific interview story that you've pursued? Um, you know, there are a bunch of different stories that I think are difficult for different reasons. The ones that, um, become personal or um where it's hard to separate your kind of human emotion um from i remember covering sandy hook for example as a correspondent that was very difficult um going back to you know the town next to where i grew up and trying to talk to people and knock on doors and it just you know um it it there are certain things as, as journalists that um, you also have to say, I'm not a voyeur here. I'm not, I don't want to add to someone's pain here. I want to understand, but I don't want to be exploitative. Like, you have to make those choices. And um, I remember talking to the family of one of the hostages that had been held by ISIS. Um, if you remember back around 2014, um, Jim Foley and a number of other hostages were held and killed by ISIS on camera. And, um, and one of the family one, one of the hostages speaking to his parents and uh you just sit and you fe- it's impossible not to feel yeah. what they're feeling those are really hard things and i think sometimes that that's not um appreciated uh sometimes when when journalists are, are trying to really do their job that they. Carry some of that with them. Sometimes um, mm-hmm. a little bit of that baggage and that weight—that it's, it's emotionally difficult. Sometimes, I mean, yeah. Politicians in that moment—it's—they it, it, know what they're doing. This is part of what their job description is. They have to answer questions to the public. Someone who's choosing right. to let you into their life and their very personal story is kind of a different category. I find those sometimes harder. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Um,
3: you know those people aren't media trained. They're not even necessarily asking to be thrown into the spotlight or, you know, to have their to have their voices be to be public. So that definitely makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. and you feel some responsibility to making sure that their story is told in the right way. In terms mm-hmm. of things where, where I've had a hard time in this moderator uh, gig, um, one of the most intense was interviewing Bill Barr, uh, the former attorney general, in the midst of Uh, That summer of racial injustice protests, just a few days after Lafayette Square, if you remember, in front of the White House, had been forcibly cleared of protesters. It was such an intense moment. And on a very short time frame, it was like an hour and a half before my show. um, Because of COVID, he couldn't come to see me. I had to go see him. It was a whole thing. And um, that was tough because he's such a lawyer. And every oh, word had to be perfect. <laughs> um, and that people like that are very hard because they can parse totally a little bit. Yeah, they, yeah, those
3: are the hardest people to uh, to to navigate. Just people who have a very strong control over their words and what they will say. That's definitely true.
0: Yeah, you've interviewed so many types of people over like a range of years as a correspondent. I'm curious if during interview interview your gender ever suddenly felt present to you, if you maybe just felt like your interviewee was treating you a certain way or had you or had a certain perspective about you or on your or on the conversation because you were a woman or if these are things you ever anticipate before interviews or if you just try to be super neutral about it. What what is gender ever
1: present for you in your job and in what ways? Uh, It's a huge question. it is i mean you know i've never not been a woman so it's kind of hard to know sometimes (laughs) right but it's uh certainly with people's perception of you is often where i hear it right i um you know i did i feel inhibited by it were held back no but i know people's perception of how you ask something how you phrase it where Uh you're going i mean certainly yes How you look, all that stuff, you get criticized to the nth degree if you choose to do a public facing job that just comes with it. But, um, you know, there is some something if you want to find the silver lining there is that it often pays pays to be underestimated. Definitely. Yeah, that makes that. Yeah, under promise
3: and over deliver
1: is a a good (laughs) motto. Yeah. Um, But but certainly, when people go, oh, oh, she interrupted too much, or those heels are too high, or this, you're like, (laughs) ah, yeah, that stuff I could deal with that. (laughs) Yeah.
3: I have a question about your role, sort of, in interviews and research and reporting around the insurrection. So obviously, that is a very important topic. And there's sort of a temptation, I think, in the media for them to both sides, pretty much any story. So how do you do you have a a take on how to handle that specific type of story where it's really a democracy question? And there's really a threat, there's sort of an inherent threat to your job and to the press in that conversation?
1: Gosh, um, this is a a big issue and has been for the past few years, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of January 6th itself, I, you know, I was speaking to someone last week. Um, I, was, I was answering questions in a public forum. And someone said, oh, I don't want to get into January 6th because that's a partisan issue. And I was like, hmm, doesn't have to be a partisan <laughs> mm-hmm. issue, actually. Um, right. It has currently been framed as that. But even if you accept that it's a partisan issue, you're somehow saying it's like Democrats versus Republicans, whereas most Republicans would tell you that they strongly um, you know, condemn what happened mm-hmm. then. So if you entertain it's partisan, then you somehow say a party owns it. And when that yeah. party says they don't, it, you know what I'm saying? Like if you deconstruct mm-hmm. the um, justifications around these things, they don't, they don't quite work. But I know it, it makes a yeah. lot of people really uncomfortable. Um, to talk about it. I think this, the way we have approached our reporting around it is to talk around the facts and the research, either Mm -hmm. around the 730 people who have been charged by the Justice Department, or, Mm -hmm. you know, when we were talking to the chairman, for instance, we talked about the specifics of like, where exactly are you trying to go and seek out things? And I think that's what's starting to change right now, where, In that interview, uh, Chairman Thompson pointed to specific things now that they have those 700 pages of documents from the National Archives. It wasn't, as has been framed and criticized, a fishing expedition. Now he could actually talk about, oh, we actually have a a copy of the executive, the draft executive Mm -hmm. order. So Mm -hmm. I think sticking to, um, you know, things that can be substantiated, right, and rather than political characterizations of them is how I will continue to do it. I think that's ultimately where the the committee, once they start these public hearings, that's going to be interesting because we hear all these dribs and drabs of storylines. And once you hear Mm -hmm. it in an arc, it it can be really chilling. The time. Yeah,
3: definitely. I think a lot. I mean, even people who are very well aware of what's going on, I think some of the details, I would actually argue most of the details have not been fully, you know, pushed out there and messaged adequately. I think a lot like people remember the images, but there's not as much of an understanding of how much of that was actually planned and how there were other levers being pulled in the background and how those, you know, really how close we were to something going the opposite way. How do you, what do you think is the best way to get that information, those complex elements of the story to be, you know, publicly known?
1: You know, um, this is one of the challenges in that when I was saying, you know, when when someone said to me, oh, that's a partisan issue, and I was like, no, it's not. Is If there are ways when you can talk in fact and development and specifics and hear that serious people are engaged with the committee when you hear that the you know former vice president or his chief of staff, the former attorney general, um, these are not people who are um, detached from the Trump administration. They were integral parts of it. So I think sticking to some of what um, they are saying uh, is a way to continue covering it because it also doesn't allow for a quick dismissal. You want to hear the next sentence. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe ultimately this mass, this this chaos was chaos, that there wasn't mm-hmm. some, um, you know, very neatly, you know, welded together master plan, um, but that a series of different things were happening and that that also deserves conversation. We had a um, political yeah. scientist on the program out of, uh, University of Chicago a few weeks ago, um, uh, Professor Pape, who had done analysis of those who had actually already been charged and arrested for physically being at the Capitol, and it was fascinating. He broke it down. Ninety percent of them uh, had white collar jobs, employed, yeah. not from the sticks, not parts of militias, not. So I think that is really important to understand because that tells us a little bit about our country, and it, it's not as easily dismissed as, oh, these are just a bunch of crazy people who have nothing to do with anything. No, actually, these are people who truly believed what they were doing, and why did they believe it? And and understanding um, that, that that thought exists out there still today, that's something we have to reckon with as a country.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And on a lighter note, if you have time for, for one more question, do you get to enjoy your
1: Saturday nights? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, yeah, we're like the overthrow of democracy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's just like, oh, well,
0: I mean, I spend most yeah. of my time thinking, but at least I have my Saturday nights. And I'm like, do you even get your Saturday <laughs> nights to not think about
1: the end of democracy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, Saturdays are really hard, um, particularly oh, no. yeah. in this environment, because, and we have, unlike the other Sunday shows, we have all interviews. You know, I have like five interviews. I don't do a political panel. So it's a lot to prep for, often at the last minute. So I don't see my husband or kids much on Saturdays um, in terms of hanging out. But my weekend is Sunday and Monday, sometimes a little bit of Tuesday. So there's that. But I can't wait until a vaccine is available for my children so that I can feel like I can go out and not worry quite as much about meeting friends in a restaurant or something.
3: Yeah, it's been a rough two years, honestly. Yeah, get John Dickerson <laughs>
0: back so you can yeah. have a Saturday night
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. for a day. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much yeah. for your time. This was a, such a thrill and so fascinating to get a, a little look behind the scenes and your approach and process. Thanks so much. Oh, it was so fun to talk to you ladies. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Sammy Sage. And this is the Better So Podcast. Bye.